Okay, good morning, good morning. Great to see you. Great to worship the Lord. Thanks, guys, the way you led us as we worship just then. Okay, as Richard said, we are into September, which does mean the start of a new term, even if it is decades since you've been at school. As for me, I always find that uh, gets this time of year and there's that sense of new term beginning and there might be a range of emotions that you're feeling as we get into September. It might be that you're feeling excited because it means a fresh season and you're looking forward to that. It might be that you're feeling a little bit nervous uh, if there are kids changing school years or schools or people who finish school and start a university. That can be that sense of nervous anticipation. Uh, if you're a parent, you might have a real sense of relief that at last... After six long weeks, the blighters are going to be out of the house and back at school, praise God. Um, it might be that you feel some sense of dread. I, I think, to be honest, for me, I tend to feel a little bit of dread this morning. Grace and I were out walking the dogs this morning, and for the first time in ages, it was starting to rain a little bit, and I'd had to put a jacket on, and I said to Grace, oh, no, I hate this. Because I, I, I love the summer. I'm trying to keep it going with my summer shirt. I like the long days. I like the water being warm in the sea. I like the flowers being out. I do not like the short days. I do not like the gray. I do not like the damp. And kind of the anticipation that what this term means, that now it still feels summer-ish, but the end of this term, we're going to be plunged into the appalling abyss that is winter. And, and that fills my heart with dread. So, so I kind of start this term. And, and Grace says, it's never as bad as you think it's going to be. We, have, we do nice things in the winter as well. I say, yes, I know, but please let me dwell in my dread. <laughs> so, and, of course, all joking aside, we have the particular challenges which are facing us as we will come inevitably into winter over the next few months. All the stuff that we're so aware of, there's so much featured in our news recently in terms of the cost of living crisis. As you might be thinking, I do not know how we're going to pay our gas and our electric bills with the way they're projected to rise if you're on a tracker mortgage and you're thinking about what the interest rates might do. And so there's all that stuff, that reality as well, which we have to face at this time. Now, for us at Gateway, this is a real season of preparation because on the 8th of January next year, we are planning to be back not in one site, two services, but two congregations in two different buildings once we have moved back into Alder Road. And... Um, this term is our preparation, this is our, our running, this is our ramp up to that. And I feel some nervous excitement about that myself. I'm excited for how God has helped us and led us and all that I believe God will do in and amongst us as we go back into two congregations. But also feel some nervousness, to be honest, because of the change. Change can always be anxiety-inducing and thinking about what it means in terms of the shape of the team not being the same as it was and Working, trying to wonder how connections with different people will work out and all that kind of stuff. And, and it might be that you have some of that nervous excitement as well as we think about going back into two congregations. So what we need to do is to prepare. And we need to prepare ourselves emotionally and practically and spiritually. And uh, so this term we're planning to particularly focus on Paul's second letter to the Corinthians which I think has got some amazing content to help us prepare. We'll be drawing themes from this letter to help prepare us practically, emotionally, and spiritually for all that's coming our way this winter, and especially for planning as we go back to two congregations in January. And uh, the first message, what I want to bring this morning, the theme of this morning's message is prepare for trouble. 
prepare for trouble. So let's, let's pray and ask God to help us. Lord, I, I thank you that you have helped us thus far. Thank you that as we have sung already this morning, great is your faithfulness. And uh, I pray for us, Lord, as we get into this new term and as we start to dig into this book of the Bible, I pray you would help prepare us, prepare our hearts. I pray that we would be prepared as your people for all that is coming, whatever might come, uh, culturally, socially, economically, and Lord, especially as we as a church prepare for going to two congregations in January. I pray that you would instruct us, encourage us, and help us, and that you would do that as we hear your words this morning. Amen. 2 Corinthians 1, verse 1, on the screen, and also page 1159 in these Bibles, if you want that. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the church of God in Corinth, together with all his holy people throughout Achaia, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This is a letter from Paul. Paul was a man who had been opposed to Christ and the Christian message, had an incredible encounter with God. His life was completely turned around and he became the primary apostle, the primary missionary in the Mediterranean region around the Roman world in the early years of the church. Timothy was a close friend, associate of Paul, who would often represent Paul, would uh, go and be involved in ministry and churches himself. And these two men minister together and write this letter. The Apostle Paul first went to the city of Corinth, we think around the year A.D. 50. Now, we, we think that Jesus died and rose again somewhere around the year A.D. 33. So within 15, 20 years of that, Paul was in Corinth. This is very early in our Christian story, very early in the story of the gospel. Paul went to Corinth, spent about 18 months there, and founded the church. And uh, Corinth was in the prophet in the province of Achaia, which is why Paul greets those in Corinth and in the province of Achaia. And Corinth occupied a strategic position, and there should be a map of it coming up, uh, on the Corinthian Isthmus. There's the, the, the bulk of mainland Greece, and then the Peloponnese Peninsula at the bottom of Greece, and Corinth with a little red, uh, uh, strange thing, which is the best I could do with my very inadequate PowerPoint skills. Uh, Corinth occupies that strategic position. And it was strategic because trade happened east to west. Uh, Lots of ships, rather than going around the Peloponnese, carry their cargoes across the small Corinthian Isthmus and also controlled north to south trade and the economy there in Greece. So Corinth occupied a very strategic position. And Paul writes this letter to the Corinthians from Ephesus, where there's a a purple circle over on on the west in what we think of as Turkey. And, And the church in Corinth, which Paul had founded, was a church in which there is some, some real disarray, and the relationship between Paul and the church had become very strained. And as you read, if you read 1 Corinthians, which Paul wrote in about AD 53, you pick up some of that strain, the things that the Corinthians were doing wrong. A couple of years later, after another friend of Paul's, Titus, has been and visited the Corinthians, Paul writes what we call 2 Corinthians. That was written probably about AD 55 from Macedonia, which is up in the north on that map. So that's the context of this letter being written. Verse 3, praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our troubles, so that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves receive from God. For just as we share abundantly in the sufferings of Christ, so also our comfort abounds through Christ. 
If we are distressed, it is for your comfort and salvation. If we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which produces in you patient endurance of the same sufferings we suffer. And our hope for you is firm, because we know that just as you share in our sufferings, so also you share in our comfort. You know, it's the people who we love most who can cause us the most distress. That is the nature of human relationships. The people who cause us the most pain are the people that we are closest to. And sometimes that's because something painful happens to people we love. Someone you love goes through a painful experience. Someone you love gets sick or loses their job or something happens to them and you feel the pain, you empathize because you love them, their pain becomes your pain. Sometimes it's because somebody you love becomes wayward. Somebody you love betrays you, rebels against you. You have a rebellious child who throws back all your love in your face. Something like that. A partner walks out on you. The person that you love lets you down and causes you extreme trouble, affliction, and distress. Now, that is something of what is going on here in the relationship between Paul and his church in Corinth. Normally, uh, and in all of Paul's letters, apart from this letter and the letter to the Galatians, after Paul has introduced himself, after he said, here's a letter, it's from me, it's from Paul, he then gives a prayer of thanks for the church he's writing to, something which he's grateful for about the church. Here in 2 Corinthians, he doesn't do that. He doesn't start with that kind of encouragement. Even, even in um, 1 Corinthians, which is a letter in which Paul is rebuking the Corinthians, he, he he rebukes him for all kinds of stuff. Somebody's sleeping with his mother-in-law and other people are taking one another to court. And there's all kinds of horrific stuff going on in the church. But even in that letter, Paul begins the letter by saying, I always thank God for you. Starts with that encouragement and that thanks. But that's missing here in 2 Corinthians. Instead, what God does here is to bless God for the comfort that he has received in his trouble. And the reason that he has experienced trouble in this case is because of the Corinthians. This church, these people he loves, this church he started and has invested so much in, are causing him trouble. Bible commentator Mark Seyfried puts it like this, the deepest affliction of the apostle is the affliction of his love for this wayward church. Paul is hurting because of what this church is doing to him. Being a pastor is uh, very much like being a parent. If you're a parent, you love your kids, you care for them. And if something goes wrong with your kids, that's what causes you the most pain. Being a pastor is a bit like that, that when stuff happens in church life, when somebody in the church is in pain or somebody in the church does something foolish, that causes the pastor pain. Now, Paul wasn't just a pastor of a local church. He didn't just have that to handle. He was an apostle who cared for multiple churches, and he carried the burden of that. And he had an especial affection for these Corinthians, and they were throwing his love back into his face. We need to understand something more of what the city of Corinth was like and how that affected what the church was like in Corinth. Corinth was a, a city that was, was built on success and social status. Corinth occupied this strategic and economic uh, vital spot in the Roman Empire, and it was a place that was an economic and cultural hub. It was a place where people went to make money. It was a place which was culturally important. There were the Isthmian Games, which were second only to the Olympic Games, happened every two years. It was a place full of businessmen and 
people wanting to make money and tourists coming to see the wonders of Corinth. It was a, a, a dynamic place, and it was a place where people were especially motivated by climbing the greasy pole, getting social status, being recognized, being identified. In our contemporary terminology, we might say that all the Corinthians were obsessed with becoming social media influencers. What, the, what every Corinthian most desired was to feature on Strictly or Love Island and to have 15 million TikTok and YouTube followers. That's what every Corinthian wanted, to have so, social prestige, to have status, recognition, honor. And the Apostle Paul doesn't play that game, doesn't play by those rules. And the church in Corinth came to resent him for this. Paul says that he shares abundantly in the sufferings of Christ. And the Corinthian church didn't want an apostle who shared abundantly in the sufferings of Christ. What the Corinthian church wanted was a winner. They wanted somebody who had 15 million followers on TikTok. They wanted somebody who looked buff enough to appear on Love Island. That's what they wanted from somebody who was going to be their leader. And Paul was nothing like that. He was, we read, physically unimpressive. And he wasn't rich, he was a tent maker, and he paid his own way. He didn't even allow the Corinthians to give him some extra money to make him look better. He wasn't into that. He refused to play by their rules. And the gospel that Paul preaches, the Christian gospel, is that real winning, what really counts as winning, often looks like losing. And the Corinthians had this the wrong way around because they were thinking in worldly Corinthian terms. They were thinking that winning looked like this, that winning looked like appearing on Strictly and having 15 million TikTok followers. And Paul says, no, winning does not look like that. The Corinthians were much more interested in finding worldly comforts, whereas the Apostle Paul wants to see them that true comfort is only found by participating in the sufferings of Christ. And it's this difference in perspective which has caused the Corinthians to reject Paul. And it could be this difference in perspective that causes us to reject Christianity. There's a temptation and a pressure for us. We live in a, in a Corinthian kind of world. And we can very easily think that the comforts that we want are the comforts that the world offers. They are, it is the prestige and status that we can search for and scrape after in the world. But Paul says if you do that, you're going to miss true comfort. True comfort. Mark Seifert again says this, we find here the theology of the entire letter in a nutshell. God's fatherly comfort is given ever only to those in weakness and affliction, a comfort that is salvation itself. Such is the nature of apostolic ministry in Christian life in which the Corinthians have refused to, which the Corinthians have refused to accept. You see, participation in Christ is a kind of a package deal. You come to Christ and you get, to sal you get salvation. What does that mean? It means you get to participate in all that Christ is and all that Christ has. Who is Jesus? Jesus is the pearl of great price. He is the treasure beyond measure. He is the one it is worth selling everything else for in order to obtain him. If you get Christ, you have one. You've got the ultimate price. In Christ, we share 
in God himself somehow. We are indwelt by the Holy Spirit who empowers us. We have these treasures given us to God. By God, we have this hope that because Christ owns all things, actually in him we will possess all things as well. That now we don't possess all things, but one day the whole earth, actually the whole universe will belong to the people of God. That we will rule over it. As God's children, what does it mean to be saved? It means coming into a relationship where you are adopted by God, where he says, you are my child, secure, loved. This is your identity. This is who you are. A status of, this is real status, to be called a child of God, to know the privilege and the power of that. That's what salvation is. It's just a, salvation is multifaceted. Man, if, there's, there's all kinds of dimensions to it. There's an eternity's worth of exploration to understand what it means to find salvation in Christ Jesus. Salvation is magnificent, beautiful, dynamic, deep, profound, powerful. But it also means that we get to participate in the sufferings of Christ. We get to participate in the sufferings of Christ. Last quote from Mark Seifried. Paul thus reminds the Corinthians that the final gift of comfort is not given apart from the reality of suffering. The apostle must first trouble the comfortable in order to later comfort the troubled. The reality was that some of these Corinthians had got too comfortable and they were finding their comforts in the wrong place. In the words of our soon-to-be ex-prime minister, they wanted to have their cake and eat their cake. They wanted to have Christ but not have the sufferings of Christ. Actually, what they wanted from Paul, really what they wanted from Jesus, was that things should be done in a Corinthian way. And that is never going to work. Because what the gospel does is to afflict the comfortable while it comforts the afflicted. There's a direct clash between the values of the gospel and the values of Corinth, the values of our world. And the thing is that Paul does really want to comfort the afflicted. Look what he says here, verse 3. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our troubles so that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves receive from God. Now that is a comprehensive claim that whatever trouble you experience, there is comfort from God our Father, the Father of compassion, the God of all comfort. That's comprehensive. If you're experiencing trouble here today, there's comfort for you. Find it in the right place. Find it in God the Father. Now, one of the interesting things about what Paul says to the Corinthians here is that he, he doesn't engage with the question of where trouble comes from. This is always a question for us. It's a question that always comes up. Something bad happens. We want to know why. Where does trouble come from? Where does affliction come from? Why does suffering have? Paul doesn't engage with that question. His focus is on how we find true comfort. Now, we have our questions, but God's comfort is bigger than our questions. What the Apostle Paul wants the Corinthians, wants us to see here, is that God is the final and ultimate source of mercy and comfort. Whatever trouble you're experiencing, wherever it's come from, God is able to comfort you. And so we need to, we need to, hear, we need to hear Paul's appeal to the Corinthians and to us. Don't look, don't look for comfort in the comforts of the world, but look to God our Father. And this applies to everybody in this room. 
If you, if you walked in and you don't know Jesus, it applies to you that where you're going to find real comfort isn't in the comforts of the world. Where you're going to find true comfort is in Jesus. And for those of us who know Jesus, there's, a, there's actually a warning for us here. The Corinthians knew Jesus. They were Christians, but they had taken their eye from the gospel. They were beginning to reject Paul and the gospel that was being preached. They were beginning to invest in a Corinthian view of the world again. That's what they were looking for. They were looking for their comforts there. And, and, and that's madness because true comfort is found in God. It's not found in the baubles of the world. It's found in the God who gives us all things in Christ Jesus. And so we need to hear this appeal from Paul to us. In our world, which would say to us all the time, you're hearing the messages 24-7 about how to find true comfort. No, look to Jesus. Look to the Father of all compassion and find comfort in him. Verse 8, we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers and sisters, about the troubles we experienced in the province of Asia. We were under great pressure, far beyond our ability to endure, so that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt we had received the sentence of death, But this happened that we might not rely on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He has delivered us from such a deadly peril, and he will deliver us again. On him we have set our hope that he will continue to deliver us as you help us by your prayers. Then many will give thanks on our behalf for the gracious favor granted us in answer to the prayers of many. You know, uh, Trouble takes many different forms. Some people just are troublemakers. Some people go looking for trouble. When Grace was first a newly qualified teacher and we just got married, Grace was teaching in a tough boys' school in the Medway towns in, in Kent, and there were three boys who've entered our family legend, Scudder, Parks, and Desmond. And even now, nearly 30 years old, we still at times talk about Scudder, Parks, and Desmond. And you know just by hearing those names, you know they're going to be trouble. You can't have three boys called Scudder, Parks, and Desmond and not have trouble follow on behind. And they were trouble. And poor Grace is a very young, small female teacher. She'd come home every day at the end of a long day teaching in this horrific school in Medway. And she'd say, this is what Scudder, Parks, and Desmond have done again. And they, they weren't they expelled in the end for their awfulness. Well, they're probably, they're, it must be in their 40s now. I wonder, I wonder if Scudder, Parks, and Desmond are still looking for trouble in the Medway towns, or whether they've been reformed and become wonderful, wonderful pillars of society. Who knows? But, I mean, they might, have, they might have set up shop as a very dodgy solicitor's outfit, Scudder, Parks, and Desmond, funding funds for the mafia or something. I don't, who knows? Sometimes there are people who just cause trouble. And what Paul is describing here is not trouble. He's, he's not looking for trouble, but trouble has found him. Scudder, Parks, and Desmond, in a sense, have found the apostle Paul. It's not trouble he's looked for, but it's trouble that has found him. And you know, troubles have a way of doing that. Troubles find us. I've had trouble, and you've had trouble. Sometimes troubles are small, sometimes they're big. Uh, the year that Grace and I got married feels so long ago, getting so old. Uh, we need some 20-year-olds to emerge in leadership in this church. That's a serious thing. Uh, we do, because we're getting old. 1994, Grace and I got married. Same year as The Lion King came out, Zazu, the character, one of the characters in, in that film, he, he, he sings the old African-American spiritual. Nobody knows the trouble I've seen. Nobody knows my sorrow. And again, that's one of the things which has entered our family kind of vocabulary, that often in our family, probably there's not a week that goes by where I don't say to Grace, nobody knows the trouble I've seen, nobody knows my sorrow. 
And often when I sing that little song to myself, it's actually not real trouble, it's an inconvenience, which feels like trouble, because trouble finds us pretty much every day. Earlier last week, Grace and I were out walking the dogs one evening, and beautiful evening, throwing the ball for the dog, suddenly realized that the blood was being drained from my body by a whole plague of mosquitoes. It was like the plagues of Egypt. I had to run for home and slather myself in antihistamine cream and down pills because I'm a very sensitive person and I react very badly <laughs> to mosquitoes. Nobody knows the trouble I've seen. Nobody knows my sorrow. But what the Apostle Paul is describing here isn't just inconvenience. What he says is that we felt we had received the sentence of death. This is a trouble that is overwhelming. And the reality is that all of us are likely to have parallel experiences to that at some point in our lives. Troubles which come which feel overwhelming, which might even feel so significant they're like the sentence of death. And I know that even some amongst us today, because I've been speaking to some of you this past week, are experiencing troubles which feel somewhat like this, where you've got to the point of being overwhelmed. It doesn't feel like we can go any further. It feels like the end. It feels like a sentence of death. Some of you are experiencing that right now. We need to pray for you. Last Sunday, Rich, at the 9.30, Matthew Ashton at the 11.30, preached about the encounter between Jesus and Satan and, his, and how we need to be alert to the accusations and wiles of the enemy trying to trip us up. And it's got, you preach a message like that, it's asking for trouble. It's asking for trouble. Mon- Monday, I got caught up in this whole part of trouble. Mon- Monday is normally my day off. And it was a bank holiday, doubly day off, but I had to spend most of the day wading through a trouble. Unlooked for, unwanted. Wednesday morning, I sat down to prepare, start preparing this message how to, with all my great insights and wisdom, teach the church about preparing for trouble. Wednesday afternoon, I received a phone call, and it was like a great funnel of piling, steaming trouble was dropped on my head. And I've spent the rest of the week since then wading through a slurry pit of hideous trouble, which I didn't look for or don't want, and it isn't, still isn't resolved. It's felt overwhelming at times. And that's how life is. That's what can happen to us. That's what the Apostle Paul describes here. And the inevitability of trouble means that we need to be ready for it. We need to prepare for trouble. If you know a storm is coming, make sure your roof is fixed. And there's always a storm coming, so keep your roof fixed. And there are three ways that Paul here describes, in verses 10 and 11, three ways that Paul describes how he has prepared himself for trouble. First thing is he, he leans on his past experience of God's deliverance. He has delivered us from such a deadly peril. God has delivered us. This has been my experience in the past. Now, many of us have an inner catastrophizer. Trouble starts to appear on the horizon, and immediately that voice, that catastrophizing voice in our heads starts to say, it's all a disaster. There's no way out of this one. You're really in trouble this time. You've reached the point of no return. It's all a disaster. And that's a dangerous place to go to because once we allow that voice of catastrophe to start speaking to us, that can lead us to giving up on things we should persist in. It can mean that we make foolish decisions and it can actually become a self-fulfilling prophecy that we talk ourselves into trouble. In, 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 
in our marriage between me and Grace, I'm the one who has the louder voice of catastrophe. Things start to happen, and I go, oh, it's a disaster. And Grace kind of slaps me and says, don't be so stupid. It's been fine before. It'll be fine again. What's your problem? And I said, but not this time. This time it's really going to be a disaster. <laughs> and, and she has to remind me, no, the Lord has delivered us in the past. The Lord can deliver us again. We need to learn to speak to ourselves of the Lord's deliverance. We need a reality check. This is a reality check. God has always brought us through. There have been troubles, but there's also been deliverance. Now, this isn't just academic. This is going to be real for many of us in the coming months. If economically things do go as they might go, we're going to have this faith battle. That catastrophizing voice is going to be playing in a lot of heads. It's a disaster. I do not know how we're going to pay the bills. I do not know how we're going to pay the mortgage. I do not know how we're going to pay for food and shoes for the kids as they go back to school. I do not know how we're going to do it. That voice of catastrophe starts to play in our minds. What we need to do is remind ourselves that God has delivered us. God has delivered us, and he can deliver us again. It's one way that Paul prepares for trouble. The second way that Paul prepares for trouble is by his hope for the future. On him, on Jesus, we have set our hope that he will continue to deliver us. What Paul hopes in is not things. What Paul hopes in is Jesus. And this word hope, it's powerful. Biblically, it's a powerful word. It's not wishful thinking. It's firm, unshakable confidence. And it's a confidence which is based in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Verse 9, he says, this happened, all this trouble happened, that we might not rely on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. The Corinthians were wanting to rely on themselves. And Paul says, that's not how it works. What happens is trouble comes in. Trouble reveals actually your inability to control stuff. It reveals your weakness. It reveals your impotence. And God has allowed this to happen. Paul says, it's happened to me. Why? So that I wouldn't rely on myself, but I would rely on God. What kind of God? The God who raises the dead. That even when stuff looks like dead, if God says it's alive, it's alive. Hebrews 6.19, we have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. What Paul is urging the Corinthians would urge us is not self-reliance, but reliance in God. Hope that God is the God of resurrection. We're going to take communion in a few minutes. That's our physical, tangible way of expressing hope. Jesus died. Jesus is raised again. We take the bread and the wine as a statement of faith. God is the God who raises the dead. So Paul prepares for trouble because of his hope. And then he prepares for trouble through the power of prayer. You help us by your prayers. Then many will give thanks on our behalf for the gracious favor granted us in answer to the prayers of many. Paul believes in the power of prayer. And the people of God are to help one another by their prayers. If you are in trouble this morning, let us pray for you before you go home. We need to pray for one another. And we see in what Paul says here, this beautiful dynamic interplay between utter confidence in God's sovereignty. Who is God? Well, God is the one we rely on. God is the one who raises the dead. God is the one who delivers. And... Human responsibility, which is what? Which is to pray. 
is to pray because God hears the prayers of his people and responds to the prayers of his people. And as we pray and as God acts, that causes thanks to be given to God for his gracious favor, which is then poured out. The power of prayer is one of the ways by which Paul prepares himself for trouble. Now, we're preparing for whatever this winter brings, and we're definitely preparing for January the 8th, when half of us will start meeting at Alder Road rather than here. And as we are in this season of preparation, what we need to do is we, we need to remind one another what God has done. If we see trouble coming, we need to remind one another that this is God who we serve, the God who has delivered us. We need to tell stories. We need to share testimonies. We need to remind one another. We need to think up, not think up, remind ourselves of the times when we have known the deliverance of God, and we need to encourage one another with that. We need to speak hope to each other. We need to speak truth to one another. When that catastrophizing voice starts to play, we need to speak truth. We all need a grace in our lives. He's going to give us a slap and tell us not to be so daft. We need to speak hope, truth of who God is and what he has done. And we need to pray for one another and with one another. Because as we pray, God acts. Now, we do need to prepare for trouble because trouble is always coming. And I think especially in this season for us where we can see, maybe predict some of the troubles we anticipate in our nation. But also spiritually, we are in a fight. We have an enemy, as we were hearing last week, who doesn't want us to prosper. We have an enemy who doesn't want Gateway Church to flourish. We have an enemy who doesn't want there to be a thriving congregation at 502 Ashley Road and also in a building up at Alder Road. We have an enemy who doesn't want that, and so we can expect there to be trouble over the next few months. We can expect there to be opposition to what we're doing. And as we face the reality of that, we need to look to the God who is the God of all comfort and compassion. Find our comfort and compassion in him. And we need to speak truth to one another and remind one another of what God has done. And we need to pray for each other. Prepare for trouble, Gateway Church. Prepare by coming to and knowing the God of all comfort. Let's pray together. Jesus, I thank you so much for your gospel. I thank you that in you we do find the treasure beyond all compare. I pray you'd help us to remind ourselves of this, that we wouldn't wouldn't lose focus, we wouldn't do what the Corinthians did and get sucked back into the way of the world, but we would see that in you is the one to desire and know over and above all else, to find our comforts in the living God, not in the trinkets of this world. And Lord, I pray, I do pray, Lord, for those who are here, some of whom I know, others I guess I don't know, but those who even today have come in carrying real troubles, things which are causing them anxiety and worry, concern, things which feel a real burden for those who've who've even been saying to themselves, maybe even before the service this morning, it's a disaster, it's just not going to work. God of all comfort, I pray that you would come and minister to those now who need to know your comfort, who need to know the truth again, who need to hear the truth again, that you are the one who delivers and you are able to deliver and we can have this hope because you're the one who raises the dead and that as we pray together and seek you, you pour out your favor upon us. Lord, we look for that. Lord, I pray that we would be prepared for whatever trouble might come our way, that the, the roof of this house would be secure as we take our stand in you, that you would help us, you would bless us, you would favor us, and you would keep us. In your name I ask it, Jesus. Amen.